Hello and welcome to the European Conservatives' first ever podcast, Brussels and Beyond, a podcast designed to keep you in the loop about the political wheelings and dealings that are happening here in Brussels and in the capitals of Europe. My name is Zoltan Kottas. We will take a look back at the events of the week to see what has been driving the political debate and what is on the European leaders' agenda. With the European Parliament elections coming up in June, political parties are already in campaign mode, the battle is about to begin, and we will be there to report about it. So let's begin. First of all, let me draw your attention to an exciting interview we have on our website with Patricia Chagnon, who is a member of the European Parliament for Marine Le Pen's sovereignist anti-globalist party National Rally. My colleague, Robert Simonson, asked her about the farmers' protests that have spread all across Europe in recent weeks. Patricia Chagnon says that while national legislation is partly responsible for angering farmers, the main culprit is Brussels, which has driven down agricultural prices due to free trade agreements, lifted all custom barriers for Ukrainian agricultural products, and imposed complicated legislation, regulation and administrative burdens. As she said, and I quote, The globalist right and the ecological extremist left have found a common enemy, European agriculture. This is why their attacks on farmers have been so efficient, because they've been attacked by both sides. To find out why they are strange bedfellows and how the protests could influence the European elections, go to our website and check out our interview with Patricia Chagnon. Farmers all around Europe have been making headlines in the past months by getting on their tractors and disrupting traffic in major cities. This week it was Czech and Polish farmers who took to the streets to protest the EU's Green Deal, the high energy costs and the burdensome bureaucracy. Polish farmers went even as far as to blocking all traffic on the borders of Ukraine, angered by the fact that cheap Ukrainian agricultural products are flooding their markets due to an EU agreement with Kiev. Meanwhile, in Prague, one Czech farmer told my colleague Robert Simonson, and I quote, When Green Deal policies are imposed only in Europe, it completely destroys Europe, as it makes us far less competitive. My colleague Mick Hume has a great opinion piece in his Democracy Watch column on how mainstream media have been labelling protesting farmers as far-right. He writes, and I quote, The far-right political libel against hard-pressed farmers is really a sign of how far the EU elites have lost touch with the reality of life for the peoples of Europe. These farmers are now in the front line of a wider populist revolt against those elitists who do fly in their private jets to the World Economic Forum in luxurious Davos, Switzerland, where they lecture the rest of us about how to save the planet by sacrificing our living standards. Mainstream media and the Brussels political elite are not the only ones throwing around the far-right label. In an interview with a once-communist paper, L'Humanité, French President Emmanuel Macron labelled two parties as far-right and as outside the Republican arc. The parties in question are Marine Le Pen's National Rally, which is the most popular party in the country, and Eric Zemmour's Reconquête Party. 
Marine Le Pen voiced her outrage at the remarks, which were most probably made in the context of the European election campaign. You can read the full story by my colleague Alain Delauzon on our website. Speaking of the national rally, former head of the EU's border security force Frontex, Fabrice Leggeri, has announced he will be one of the lead candidates for the party at the European elections. During his tenure as the head of Frontex, Leggeri earned a reputation for clashing with NGOs and the notoriously left-wing EU Home Affairs Commissioner Ilva Johansson. While he was accused of supporting the so-called pushback operations directed at migrants entering Europe illegally from Turkey, he has gained supporters on the right. Announcing his decision to run for a seat in the European Parliament, he said a national rally has concrete plans to stop migration, while Eurocrats do not consider migration as a problem, but rather as a project. Migration is expected to be a key issue for European voters after a record number of illegal crossings were registered in the Mediterranean last year. With regards to migration, a new report published by the Centre for Migration Control think tank writes that migrants who are legally in the United Kingdom but don't have a job have cost taxpayers almost £24 billion in just four years. These are migrants who have moved to Britain and are neither in work nor looking for work and so are not contributing to the economy. Former UKIP leader Nigel Farage, who campaigned for Brexit and for Britain to take back control of its borders, called the numbers staggering and said real political change must happen in Britain. Ursula von der Leyen, the head of the European Commission, announced this week her bid to lead the centre-right European People's Party's list of candidates at this year's European elections, meaning she would like to return for a second term as Commission President. As my colleague Tamás Orbán reported, she has a good chance. Tamás, why does Ursula von der Leyen have a good chance of getting re-elected? Well, first of all, she has... Um she has familiarity, which means that a sitting president is always more likely to be re-elected than uh, somebody completely new. Of course, there's the road for re-election is actually very long. So um, for the moment, she only announced her um, intention to run for the EPP's Spitz and Candidat, which will be decided by the party's electoral congress next month in Bucharest. There is a slight chance that the party will nominate somebody else. Only uh, the party's president, Manfred Weber, can come in mind, but I don't think that's going to happen, exactly because what I said, von der Leyen carries a completely different uh, charisma just by leading through the EU, countless crises these uh, past five years. And then if she becomes the Spitzen candidate, then um, basically uh, she can claim a bit of additional legitimacy uh, after the elections because EPP is set to become the largest member of the European Parliament again. The Spitzen candidate system, uh, in a nutshell, is, um, is the theory that the candidate of the largest party in parliament should become the commission president. But this 
is um, is not actually a rule. It's only a recommendation in the EU treaties. The treaties only recommend that the member states, when selecting a commission president, should take um, the Spitzenkandidat in consideration, which means that anything can happen. Just remember that in 2019, the Spitzenkandidat was Manfred Weber, yet the president became Ursula von der Leyen out of, out of the blue <laughs> completely. Now it could be different, of course, but we, we never know. Ultimately, it's up for the 27 member states to come up with, with a person who everybody can agree on. Not everybody, actually. Uh, they need only, I think, a qualified majority backing for a commission president nomination. But then the council's nominee need to be confirmed by the European Parliament with a simple majority. In 2019, von der Leyen uh, only barely managed to win over enough MEPs. From the then uh, 750 MEPs, she got only 51%, only nine votes over the needed threshold. And um, almost all those votes came from the EPP, the Socialists, the SD, and the Liberal Renew Party, right? So, but but this center-center-left coalition then enjoyed a much more comfortable uh, majority in the parliament than what they can hope for this year. This year, they were still, between the three, they will still have a, a simple majority, but only slightly. And if even just a few of the parties within these three groups decide not to back von der Leyen's uh, re-election, that means that she would need other parties to make up for the difference from either the Greens, who don't really like her uh, as of now, since uh, she began to roll back on some of the uh, environmental policies following the farmers' protests, or the conservative groups. Now, she recently ruled out of uh, working with the majority of the ID group parties, calling them uh, Putin's friends, but showing that she also knows the numbers and what she needs to get a second term. She started to cozy up in one way or another to the European Conservative and Reformist Group. And uh, I think we are going to see even more concessions and gestures to one of the uh, conservatives within the ECR in the coming months. She doesn't need the entire ECR group. She just needs a couple of the bigger members to make her claim secure. But the bottom line is uh, nothing, nothing is uh, sure at the moment, she she has the highest chance, I think, of all the all the people we now can think of to be the next European Commission president. But that doesn't mean that uh, she will get the job eventually. Tomasz, thank you very much for this insightful explanation. 
A user on the social media platform X has made explosive revelations about how a network organized and funded by billionaire George Soros has been actively interfering in the domestic affairs of mainly Central European nations with the desire to topple conservative governments and help leftist parties to power. In secretly recorded interviews, the heads of the US-based NGO Action for Democracy have admitted to trying to influence elections in Hungary, Poland and Slovakia, and have even cooperated with US media to tarnish the reputation of Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and other like-minded leaders. As we previously reported, Action for Democracy was the organization that was caught illegally channeling over $10 million into the opposition party's campaign during the 2022 Hungarian elections. The European Conservative organized an exciting panel discussion this week in Brussels on the worrying attempt by EU institutions and some Western European nations to strip EU member states of their voting rights and take away even more competencies from sovereign nation states. Jacek Sariusz-Wolski, member of the European Parliament for the Polish Conservative Law and Justice Party, warned that larger nations would rule over the smaller ones Germany, France, Italy and Spain would be able to outvote all the other member states. I started by saying it's centralist, not federal. It's anti-federalist. Federal structures, if you go to, to the theory, uh, starting with Proudhon, and if you go to the reality, which is uh, the German federal state, Swiss federal state and the American federal state, the component parts of federation are equal or nearly equal. Uh, when I say to Americans, look, we are creating the United States of Europe, uh, where New York, Texas, and California will be governing other states and other states will have nothing to say, they laugh. <laughs> they, they, this is the project. So it is anti-federal, uh, centralist uh, project of building a European state, abolishing the union of sovereignty as it is at least theoretically in the treaties and replacing it with a European superstate. Professor Richard Legutko, co-chairman of the European Conservatives and Reformists Group in the European Parliament, argued that the right to veto is the most important tool for smaller member states to defend themselves. The, the right to veto was the only or perhaps the most important tool that the, the smaller and weaker member states had uh, to defend themselves against the arbitrary power of the big structures of the, of the strongest players. With that being scrapped, the smaller and the weaker countries are at the mercy of uh, the bigger players the biggest players and the strongest players and the European institutions. Uh, therefore, the end result is, of course, a, a hierarchy or an oligarchy and not some kind of federalism in the proper sense of, of the word. Gerolf Annemans, MEP for the Flemish nationalist Vlaams Belang Party, agreed with his colleagues talking about centralization efforts speeding up. 
contrary to what would have been uh, wise and necessary, Brexit was not a moment of introspection uh, for the European Union, a moment for strategic self-reflection about the future developments. Uh, on the contrary, since the withdrawal of the United Kingdom, the cooperation of the European member states within the European Union has paradoxically turned into a speed race, a frenzied acceleration of centralization and the creation, replacing the member states of a unitary state, or even in the words of the Flemish-Belgian Guy Verhofstadt, uh, a world empire, literally. Ever since, the European Union is seizing every crisis, including the COVID crisis and the war in Ukraine, to gradually strengthen and accelerate this evolution. Now, here's a very interesting topic. In an email widely circulated among European Commission employees, a trade union for EU staff members warned that a spike in shootings, street robberies and drug-related activity in central Brussels is decreasing the attractiveness of the European institutions as workplaces caused by the growing risk to personal safety. My colleague Thomas O'Reilly has been covering the story. Thomas, what exactly are staff members worried about? Well, the email was issued by the European Union's largest employees union, Renovu and Democracy, and complains about a rising wave of crime, particularly in sort of Brussels's train stations. Uh, it references a spate of high profile attacks, including the shooting of one Swedish parliamentary aide uh, two months ago, two months ago, uh, five minutes away from the parliament. But it points to a sort of wider malaise in the city. Um, anyone living in Brussels the past two weeks could not ignore the sort of the near constant sirens throughout the city, as media reports describe Algerian and Moroccan gangs competing for territory. But yes, the, it's it's a very stark warning, a very public uh, warning. Uh, commission employees that I spoke to said it was widely distributed, but it was really just saying the very obvious. Uh, it references statements by Belgian policing authorities about the existence of effective no-go areas, as well as a sort of metastasization of crime from petty drug dealing to something we, the likes of crimes that we see in Antwerp, more sort of Molotov cocktails and sort of organized narco-terrorism. But as I said, it's merely saying something that everyone in the city knows about how Brussels is changing. And one of the rather ironic references in the email was mentioned that even EU employees in the, cent in the heart of Brussels are forced to use the personal car, uh, contrary to the European Union's Green uh, Green New Deal. But uh, yeah, very worrying email. Yeah, it does seem like a the bad situation and uh, people are worried about the crime rate in Brussels. What exactly are they demanding from the EU leaders or EU officials? Well, the letter itself was surprisingly short on specifics. Uh, the European Union is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place in a sense of not controlling policing directly in Brussels. Uh, but the letter uh, asks uh, more senior Eurocrats and Belgian officials to sort of prioritize the safety of EU officials. Uh, again, particularly it, it references Schumann uh, uh, metro station right outside the European Commission's HQ specifically, um, but yeah, there's no specific demands other than a greater prioritization of the employees in the European institutions. Thomas, thank you very much. Finally, I would like to draw your attention to two very interesting and insightful interviews. 
The first one by the European Conservatives managing editor Ellen Fantini, who spoke to Republican Senator J.D. Vance from Ohio. Vance is an ally of former President Donald Trump and has been floated by media as a potential vice presidential nominee if Trump were to return to the White House after elections in November. Like many others in the Republican Party, the senator has criticized the US and European approach to Ukraine. In the interview, he said, and I quote, What's the strategy here? What's the end game? How do you get out of this conflict without completely destroying the country of Ukraine, demographically, infrastructurally, economically? He added, It's fine not to like Putin. I don't like Putin. But that's not a foreign policy vision. J.D. Vance also talked about how Ronald Reagan's views are much closer to Donald Trump's than to the neoconservatives, and he also gave us his insight into the upcoming European elections. My colleague Jonathan von Myron talked exclusively to English conservative author, broadcaster and journalist Peter Hitchens, a regular commentator on British political news shows. In the interview, Hitchens talks about his experience as a young journalist, which led him to denouncing his Marxist-Leninist revolutionary outtake on life. He speaks of his time as a foreign correspondent in Moscow at the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, his close encounters with Bill Clinton and Margaret Thatcher, and why his work has attracted a dedicated following. Read both fascinating interviews on our website, europeanconservative.com. And that concludes the first episode of Brussels and Beyond. Don't forget to read the European Conservative, check out our website, subscribe to our Twitter, Facebook and YouTube channels and watch our monthly TV show where my colleague Jofia Todbiro talks exclusively to experts and MEPs about what's shaping European politics. Hope you tune in again next week. Have a very good week. Bye bye. <laughs>